Our Old Testament reading is from the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 7, verses 3 through 14. We'll read this responsibly. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not, Do not trust in these deceptive words. This, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not press the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in his place, and if you do not have other gods to your own heart, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to none of Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear false witness, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered. Only do go on doing these abominations. As this house, which is called by my name, Go now to my place that was in Shiloh. That was, a, by the way, that was a former temple in the early days. That's where the tabernacle was kept. And he says, go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name, and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. And then our New Testament reading. As we continue our study in the Gospel of John, comes from John 2, and we'll begin reading with verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answers them, destroy this temple. In three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, 
it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body when therefore he was raised up from the dead. His disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together and ask the Father to speak to us and teach us this morning. Our Father, we bow before you as your priests this morning. We're a congregation of priests for everyone who knows Christ. Everyone who knows you, Father, is called to be a priest in this world. We strive to take your word out into the world in our lives. And what we say and what we do, that's what we've been about this week, trying to be salt and light out there, giving the world the gospel, serving as prophets. But when we come in here, we're your priests. And we come bringing our children, our fathers and mothers, our parents, our grandparents, grandchildren, come bringing our neighbors, those around us in need, and we lay them before your throne, asking your blessing. Father, we continue to pray for the family of Tim Keller in New York. Father, wipe away their tears. Give them, Father, a consolation and help that is beyond their imagination. We pray for the family of Harry Reader, especially for Cindy, Father. Bless her this day. Bless her children, grandchildren. We pray that you would bring peace and comfort, comfort that they could not imagine. We pray, Father, for Briarwood Presbyterian. A great blow has been dealt to that church. Our Father, we pray that you would bless those leaders in an extraordinary way and bring the man that you have prepared to bring the word to Briarwood. Father, we pray for Buddy Wittishin this morning that you'll continue to heal his knee Father, take away the pain. Give me a good motion in that knee. We pray, Father, for Phil and Sally Halley. Father, strengthen Sally as she cares for Phil. Strengthen him, Father. Strengthen his body. Yet, Bring motion to those limbs. Our Father, now as we open your word, we confess as we do every week that John Sartell is not able to teach so it will make any difference in our lives. He's not able to speak so that we'll be changed to the very core of our being and grow in Christ. He's not able to speak so that some of us might be changed for the first time. 
But you do speak that way, Father, through the power of your Spirit. We've heard you in this place. And so we pray that we would hear you again this morning. Oh, Father, we're your children. Draw us close to you and teach us this morning. Teach us, Father. Tell us the story one more time. Explain your word one more time. In Jesus' name, amen. Whose house is this? There's a connecting verse between the miracle at the wedding feast in Cana that we studied last week. Between that, there's a connecting verse that connects with Jesus going up to Jerusalem for the Passover and causing the explosive scene that we read this morning. And that connecting verse is a 12th verse. As I said, it's not on your scripture sheet, but listen carefully as I read it or look at it in your Bible. John 2, 12. After this, that's after the wedding feast at Cana, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Jesus left the wedding feast in Cana and walked with his mother, his brothers, and the disciples. Disciples that he had met in Jerusalem and walked home to Galilee, with whom he had walked home to Galilee, and they had gone together to Cana to this wedding feast. It wasn't all 12. He hadn't finished calling all the disciples. But we suppose it was Andrew, John, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and they went to Capernaum. That was a short distance from Cana, only 20 miles. But Cana was at a high elevation in the hills. Capernaum was on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Matthew tells us that Jesus moved from Nazareth to Capernaum at the beginning of his ministry. So he had moved to Capernaum and was going home with his disciples. It happened that Andrew, Peter, James, and John, and Philip were all from that immediate area. He's only there for a few days if you look at it. It says they stayed there for a few days. He's only there a few days, and he goes up to Jerusalem for the Passover. John records Jesus going up to the Passover in Jerusalem three times in his gospel. This is the first that he records. It makes sense that the Messiah would not miss that first Passover after his ministry had begun. The Passover was the greatest of all religious celebrations and feasts in Israel. Jewish pilgrims in Israel and from the entire Mediterranean area flocked to Jerusalem for the Passover. It's estimated in our scholarship that 250,000, think about 250,000 pilgrims visited Jerusalem during the Passover feast week. The temple area would have been a focal point 
to everyone gathering for the feast. So Jesus, of course, goes to the temple. A sacrifice was required during the Passover for all these pilgrims. For the convenience of the pilgrims, sacrificial animals, birds, sheep, oxen, were sold in the street going up to the temple. Also, there was a required temple tax that each pilgrim had to pay in the local currency of Jerusalem. Now think about this. Maybe it's estimated that 200,000 pilgrims came from other nations, from outside Israel. They carried currency representing their own nations or the Roman Empire. So there had to be a currency exchange on hand. Thus, there were business folks called money changers there. Now, there was nothing wrong with these businesses if they were practiced honestly. But there was plenty of room for dishonesty. Remember, the sacrifices had to be without blemish. If I was a pilgrim who brought my sacrificial lamb from my own flock to the temple. Maybe the priest just might declare that my lamb was unfit so that I had to purchase a sacrifice from one of these businesses. The money changers could charge an exorbitant fee for services, especially during the holiday. If we're to understand what was happening, we must take into account what we also learn from Matthew, Mark, and Luke about this event. They place, now hang on here, this is really important, it's more important than you think. They place the event near the end of Jesus' ministry, right after the triumphal entry, right before the cross. As we have seen, John seems to place this event during the Passover at the beginning of his ministry, not at the end. Was John describing the same event as Matthew, Mark, and Luke? And just, and just telling the story at the beginning of his gospel. John's gospel does not always move in a chronological order. So maybe that's possible. However, I strongly agree with the scholars who say that Jesus addressed the issue, the issue of corruption in the temple twice in his ministry. And if you look closely at this, it's really, really obvious. At the beginning of his ministry, we saw it this morning, Jesus was shocked that all this buying and selling was taking place. Now get it, not at the temple doors. No, it was taking place inside the temple. We learn from history that at one time that animal merchants set up their stalls across the Kidron Valley on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. That's where they did this business. But by this time, they had actually moved their businesses inside the temple itself. 
They had moved it into the outer court, what was known in the temple as the outer court of the Gentiles. In John's record of this first account, or encounter, Jesus does not speak of their dishonesty. Notice that. He doesn't say you're cheating. He doesn't say you're stealing. He doesn't say you're robbers. He is angry that they've moved their businesses into the very sanctuary of the temple. Look at verse 16. Take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. He says nothing about their dishonesty. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke's records, Jesus is focused on the dishonesty and extortion of those selling sacrificial animals and money changers. His, the exact words in their gospels is, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. He didn't call them robbers. He doesn't call them thieves in John's account. In John's record before us this morning, Jesus says nothing about their extortion. He only addresses them doing their business inside the temple, the house of worship. That's one reason I think Jesus addressed the problem at the beginning of his ministry and also at the end of his ministry two years later. In John at the beginning of his ministry, the leaders respond. Furthermore, this is another reason. The leaders respond to Jesus' burst by saying, who are you? What is your authority to be doing something like this in our temple? Who are you? At that point, so early in Jesus' ministry, he was not a household name in Israel. In Mark and Luke's record, at the end of his ministry, their reaction is completely different. They know him well. And the reaction is much stronger. They make plans to kill him in response to his cleansing of the temple. They say nothing about who are you. They, they said, this is blasphemy. This man must die. Let me ask you a question. So he drove them out in this Second chapter of John, early in his ministry. These, these businesses were making money hand over fist. This was Passover. At least 250,000 people would pass through the temple buying sacrifices and paying their temple tax. Just think of the money that was made just off the temple tax. These vendors were doing this in cooperation with the high priest and his subordinates. After Jesus did this, so here's my question. How long do you think it took them to return to this lucrative setup? We can be quite sure that two years after this encounter, they had returned to their money-making co-op. In his second encounter with this cabal, Jesus exposes their fraudulent cor corruption and price gouging. He shouted, it's written, my house should be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. His emphasis in the second encounter is on their treachery in the temple. If we're to understand this event, we must also understand exactly what Jesus did. 
This scene is an explosive, explosive drama. The temple is the focal point of architecture and all social and religious life in Jerusalem. The temple was known as Herod's temple. It had gone, undergone 46 years of expansion and refurbishing under the Herods. It covered this temple. Think about this. I mean, it was prominent. When you were coming down the Mount of Olives, there was, there was the most prominent building in Jerusalem. Here's this great city, and here was the temple in the midst of it. It covered 35 acres. And here were sheep, oxen, pigeons, owners and customers bartering, money changers sitting at the tables with stacks of coins. Now notice, I love this. Jesus did not pull out a scroll and begin to read from the prophets. In the second encounter, he did shout a verse from Jeremiah, but that was it. But he didn't preach a sermon. He didn't call together in this morning's passage the merchants and say, we need to talk about this. We need to negotiate this. He didn't have a meeting with the high priest and say, you really need to think about this. Rather, he wrapped some cords together, making a whip. He's angry. He began turning those tables over, filled with coins. With the whip, he drove the animals out of the temple. He was hurting animals, the keepers, the money changers, the priests involved with this chicanery. Jesus was literally driving them out with physical force. All my life, I've heard Sunday school teachers and even ministers say, oh, this is very unlike Jesus. He, he really wasn't like this. He did not do things like this. Well, here it is. This is exactly like Jesus. He not only did this once, as we've seen, he did it twice. What did he say to Peter when Peter attempted him to dissuade from Jesus after Peter's great confession said, told Peter and the disciples that he would die a sacrificial death, that he would be killed, suffering a humiliating death on the cross? Peter rebuked Jesus and told him, Messiahs don't die on crosses. And what was Jesus' response? He got in Peter's face. And he called him Satan. He said, you get behind me, Satan. Just a few months ago, we studied Revelation 19 in this sanctuary on a Sunday morning. Let's go back to there right now. Look on your scripture sheet, Revelation 19, 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges, and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, diadems and his name was written that no one knows but himself. 
He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Who is the warrior king riding the war horse and leading that great army? It's Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God and Son of Man. The same Jesus that was in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Peter tried to protect Jesus, remember he sliced off the servant of the high priest's ear? And Peter, if you ask Peter, what are you trying to do, Peter? I'm trying to protect Jesus. There's nothing more absurd. Like Jesus needs protecting. What did Jesus say? What are you doing? Don't you know who I am? Don't you know I could say a word? And an army of angels would appear and decimate the whole Roman Empire? Folks, we should wonder and stand in awe at the restraint of Jesus. He was not and is not caught in the unstoppable gears of human cruelty and power. No, Jesus in the temple with the whip is not an aberration. Don't you ever say, this is not like Jesus. It's not an aberration. It's a revelation of who he is. Why did Jesus do it? John tells us right in this passage. His disciples remembered the words of David from Psalm 69.9. Zeal for your house has consumed me. That's what David, remember David went to the Lord and said, I want to build a temple for you. And God said, no, you're not going to build it. Your son Solomon will build it. And David said this sentence, zeal for your house has consumed me. I want to build it. How much more would Jesus be zealous for the house of the Lord? How much more? David, a mere mortal, and a sinful one at that, was consumed? Well, here's Jesus, the perfect Son of God. How much more would he be consumed with a zeal for the house of the Lord? What's he say? Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Jesus looked at the temple as what? His father's house. And we'll see in a moment, he looked at it as his own house. What if you went, what if you went home this morning and you found that your house had been taken over by some thugs? They somehow had gotten your deed and they were in your house with all your furniture and had turned it into a meth lab. You go to the police, of course. And the police say, why are you so upset? Why are you saying? That's my house. Well, somehow they've gotten the deed. 
That's what happened to the temple that day. What are you doing in my house? That's what Jesus was saying. What's wrong with the scene, picture and the scene before us? What's missing? The people of Israel are missing. The people of Jerusalem, the priests of Sanhedrin that had allowed this to happen in God's house. They didn't have zeal for his house. Why weren't they the ones overturning the tables and driving out the livestock and their owners? zeal for the Lord's house did not consume them. Zeal for a holy worship had not consumed them. The history of the church people is filled with church members and leaders with no zeal for the house of the Lord. No zeal for a holy worship of a transcendent God. Question. Where's the temple today? We don't go to Jerusalem for the Passover. We don't go to Jerusalem for the temple there. Where's the temple? We've learned over and over again, even here in this place, that the church of Jesus Christ has become the temple. What did Jesus say to the disciples when they expressed their faith? They said, you're the Messiah. He said, upon this rock, I will build my church. I'll build my temple on this rock. Paul talks about that in Ephesians 2. Please look at this scripture. Please, we should memorize this scripture. So then, you who are no longer strangers and aliens, but you who are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, He's speaking to the church at Ephesus, built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in which the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. Do you see it? He calls us a temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So this church gathered here this morning, this choir, all of you, in this place right now, we're the church, we're the temple. We are the temple. That's what it says. So what's our zeal level for Christ's covenant reformed church? What's our zeal for this temple? That's a valid question that we must ask as we study this scene. Jesus was zealous for God's holiness, for reverence. There was no reverence that he saw in the court of the Gentiles that had been turned into a stockyard auction. Think about that. That place in the temple had been set apart. The Gentiles couldn't go to the other parts of the temple. That had been set apart where Gentiles could hear the word of God. I hope that question remains before me. I hope that question remains before you. Jesus was doing something else here, and this is huge, besides demonstrating his zeal for God's house. This was another sign, a sign like 
changing the water to wine. This was another claim to his being the disciple, being the, the Messiah. Remember, what did John say? I'm writing this so we'll know that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. Every page, every verse is about that purpose. Every miraculous scene is about that purpose. And here John is declaring the Messiahship and the deity of Christ as he watches this. That's what he's saying Christ is claiming. How do the officials of the temple respond? Look at it. How do they respond? Jesus is wrecking this place, driving these people out. Who is this madman? So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? The Jews did not refer to God as our father. Never, you don't see that. He had never referred to him as their father. What does Jesus say? He had called the temple my father's house. Just as turning the water into wine was a sign of his deity, his action in the temple was a messianic claim. He's saying, this house belongs to my father. And he goes on and he says, this house belongs to me. What sign do you give us that you're the one? They've got that. What, what, what sign do you give us that you're in charge of the temple? And he says, you destroy this temple and I'll build it in three days. And they laugh. The temple's been 46 years in building and you'll build it up in three days. John understood, the other disciples understood what he meant after the resurrection. Look at the verse. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised up from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. John was saying, he's, Jesus is saying, I'm the temple. Wow, I'm not only the Son of God, I'm the, not only the Messiah, I'm the temple. Look at Revelation 21, 22. John says, I did not see a temple in the city, talking about the new heavens and the new earth, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. What makes the church, now listen to me, hold on. What makes the church the temple of God, the house of God? If, if we gather, if we, next week, if, if we meet out in the field, Go out in Fayette County and we, we'll just meet in a field out there. The church, all of us. At that point, we're still Christ's covenant reformed church, aren't we? We're still the church of Jesus Christ. We're still the temple at that point. What makes us that? Jesus said it, we're two or three gather in my name. I will be in their midst. That's why we must have zeal for Christ's covenant reformed church. Not the structure of this gym, not the building, but when we gather as members of Christ's covenant reformed church, we are the temple, the house of God, because Jesus is here. Well, there's one other great truth that we must take away from this scene. This scene shouts to us that God cares about how he's worshiped. Jesus was saying, as he looked at this awful, awful cabal of business, 
this is not the way you worship God. What did God say from the burning bush? Moses, take off your holy, take off your shoes. Why, why should I take off my shoes, Lord? You're standing in my presence. You're standing on holy ground. Do you know what was written all over the tabernacle and temple, all through the temple, all through the tabernacle in Hebrew? Separated from the world, holy to the God, holy to the Lord, holy to the world, holy, excuse me, holy to God, holy to God. The Hebrew word is kodosh. Meaning separate, to cut, to separate. We've been cut out. We've been separated to be used of God. When something in the temple was just candelabra was to be used in the temple, you know, it was set apart. It was anointed. That's where our baptism came from. You've been baptized. The baptism is an anointing setting you apart for holy who gave us the right of baptism God did this is to set you apart I've set you apart for worship for holy use oh folks he cares how we worship him Isaiah fell on his face read Isaiah 6 we've read it thousands of times Isaiah fell on his face in the temple at his vision of the Lord here was God exalted on his throne, high and lifted up. Just the train of his regal robe filled the temple. And the great seraphim, gigantic, huge seraphim with their faces covered, were singing, holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, as Isaiah fell on his face. He had seen the glory of God. But you know who had been there? Think about this. I thought about it all week. Do you know who had been there in Isaiah 6 to see all that? The Son of God had been there. Write that in Isaiah 6 in your Bible. That the Son of God who became incarnate, he was there. The same Son of God that walked into the temple, the court of the Gentiles, and saw all of this. He was there. What was happening? Before Jesus' face, sheep and oxen filled the place. Vendors were bartering. Would-be worshipers were being fleeced. God's holiness was being blasphemed. Jesus was shouting, there is no reverence in this place. People, this is one reason. We must decry what has happened in the evangelical church. For inside the church, we've been the one to say this. We've got to adjust our worship. We've got to adjust our worship so that it will satisfy the world, so the world will be attracted. Do you know how heinous that is? God is the one that designed the tabernacle. God is the one that designed the temple. God is the one that designed the church of Jesus Christ. 
We've got to sort of say, we've got to change the design, change, we've got to adjust our worship to attract the world. The day Christ covenant reformed church lets the world determine how, let's, we let the world determine how we worship will be the day we die. life of the church will be over. That's why, and this is in closing, if you open your bulletin, that's why written between the Lord's Day worship there at the head of our order of worship, we read these words. We cross the threshold of the secular to the sacred From the common to the uncommon, from the profane to the holy, the prelude is a sacred curtain drawn between the world and the sanctuary. During this time, be prayerful and reverent in preparation for the worship of our holy God in his sanctuary. Whose temple is this? Whose church is this? It's not mine. It's not yours. It doesn't belong to our leadership. This is God's house. This is Jesus' house. It's Jesus' temple. So when he shows up, how does he respond to our worship? He came to his house that day and he made a whip. There's only one song to sing now. Hymn number 100. Holy, holy, holy.
May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be inside of us and go with us and abide with us. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.